0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by
1: N2K. Can you help me? Four most powerful words in social engineering. Can you help me? And if you can use their lingo, you're in.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire and joining me as always is Joe Carrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hi Joe. Hi Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share and later in the show we welcome Rachel Toback. She's the CEO of Social Proof Security. And we are back with some interesting stories to share. Joe, you're up first this week. What do you got for us?
0: Well, last two weeks, Dave, I've kind of had very dark stories. Yes, you have. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to talk about something that's not so dark and maybe lighten it up a little bit. All right. But if you think of a police sting as something, you generally think of that as something that takes a lot of time to set up. Right. right. You may require the cooperation of someone on the inside of the operation. Mm-hmm. You may have to acquire some contraband to use as a prop. And I'll bet that's a lot of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lots of skulking about, right? You have to, yeah. You have to run the long con. So, some smart police have come up with a way to social engineer people with outstanding warrants. Hmm. So here's the con: the mark is told that they've won a prize of some kind. Now, when you say mark, what are what are we talking We're about? We're talking here? about the person with the outstanding warrant. Okay, it's old. Con artists speak. Okay. okay. I acquired the word from Harry Anderson's book.
2: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Now, I, I was curious, what, what who were they targeting here? So the police are after folks who haven't showed up for a court date or something right. like that.
0: They may have an outstanding warrant for DWI or, you know, generally when a small local police department does this, they're mm-hmm. going after nonviolent offenders. But gotcha. don't jump ahead yet, Dave. Oh, Let's I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Because I've got a really good one at the end of this. <laughs> All right. So here's the con. The person with the outstanding warrant is told you, won a prize. You, but you got to show up in person to claim the prize. Ah. Right? So that's step one. And they may be told with a phone call, they may be told with a letter, they may be told with email, they may be told on social media, mm-hmm. but they say, You've won a prize, come on down. So, when they show up at the facility, it's usually like a hotel or something. And when they get there, there's like cameramen with cameras and maybe mm. a, a news reporter going, How do you feel about winning this? Right. And <laughs> right. the old publishers'
2: clearinghouse balloons and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Right. And then they walk in, and at the, at the front desk, there's, you know, it's just a table set up with like four or five people sitting at it. Of course, everybody sitting at the table is a police officer. Right. And they say, uh, <laughs> Out need- of uniform. Right. Out of uniform. Right. They're, they're just dressed, you know, in uh, street clothes, they're uh-huh. not yeah, not uniform police, right? And they validate the person's identification by saying, <laughs> "Well, what's your name? All right, you're on the list. Yeah, good, you're on the list. Let me see some ID and make sure it's you, right? And everything you'd think that a contest would need to do to validate your ID, right? Makes perfect sense, right? And then they say, "All right, your prize is in that room. Go into that room." And an officer escorts them, you know, not looking like an officer, looking Mm -hmm. like just some guy in a suit or maybe. uh, And they're like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. You're going to be so happy. And they walk in to the room. And that's where the uniformed police officers are that (laughs) place them under arrest. Right. Tell them that they are being arrested for an outstanding warrant. (sighs) (sighs)
2: Yeah. And that's the con. Right. (laughs) Right,
0: right, And there are videos of this on YouTube. And they're great to watch. Yeah, I think. And well, and they've been at this for a while, right? This has been something that the police continue to do, but this is something that they've been doing for a while because it works. It, it does. In 1985, the U.S. Marshals went after some people in Washington, D.C. that had outstanding warrants, and this was great. They told them, you've won two tickets to a Redskins game, plus transportation to the game, plus you get to go to a pregame party at this location. So when they showed up, there were agents dressed like Washington Redskins cheerleaders, oh. right? And they hugged the winners in quotes, you know, right? These people, and that was essentially a frisk, right, <laughs> to make sure that that they right. didn't even so. Right, so the bad
2: guys thinking, oh, this is delightful. I'm getting hugged by a Redskins cheerleader. My dreams have come true. Not right. knowing. And that that they're actually being patted down they're to see if they have they're a getting to a pat it. down, right? All, right?
0: All right. I love then, it. Then they go to the next room, they get arrested. This whole thing works on greed, mm-hmm. right? If you're somebody who has an outstanding warrant, chances are you know you have an outstanding warrant. Right. So you're trying to maintain a low profile. You're looking over your shoulder. Right. That desire to keep a low profile is overcome by the desire for free stuff.
2: Right. Every time. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, that's a good one. My story this week comes from the folks at Sentinel One. That's a security company. It's an article they published. It's called The Weakest Link. When Admins Get Phished, OS10.dummy. So... Imagine you are a member of a public Slack or a Discord group or any one of those social messaging systems, and you're part of a group that is there for Mac tech support. So you are someone who works in tech support, maybe you're an admin for a a Mac network, Uh, and this is a place where you frequent and folks are there, they help each other out, and you happen to reach out for help, let's say, for something with you're having some network performance issues. Right. And just when you think that you're out of luck, you get a direct message from one of the group's team admins, and that person has a solution. Uh And the solution says, we've been aware of this issue for a while, and we've developed a way around it. You'll need to download and execute this tool with privileges to solve the problem. (laughs) It's a trap. We'd welcome your feedback on how it goes, or if there's anything we need to do to improve the fix. All right? Huh. So you download it. This is the solution to all my problems, right? Right. Here I am. I'm in a group of trusted people. They've earned my trust. We've helped each other out over who knows how long. So I will download this script. I will execute it. And bam, they've got me. I've given them admin privileges. Because you had to run it with privileges. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So one of the points that they were making in this article was that admins are vulnerable, not dumb. Right. Right. This is not a case. I mean, this is smart, smart people, Uh but it's not a case of them being stupid. It's a case of, like we say, week after week,
0: people having earned their trust. Yeah. Being conned is not an indication of lack of intelligence. It's an indication of being a human. Yeah. And these admins are probably under a lot of pressure from their customers, you know, their customers being internal employees and other people. They're running a network and the network might not be operating well. Right. And here's somebody who has presented them with the fix, right? On a platter. Who among us hasn't done this? You know, you have a problem,
2: something's wrong with your computer, you go out and search for the solution in an online forum. Right. Because chances are someone else has had the same problem. Absolutely. And someone smarter than you or more experienced than you or just who got to it before you has the solution. I've certainly done that many, many many times. In
0: fact, I've done that with some recent problems with my home computer. But the way I mitigated this risk was whenever I downloaded something, the very next place I went was to Virustotal.com. Yeah. And I uploaded it there.
2: Well, to that point, the package that people would download scored a zero on Virustotal. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I I suspect that's probably been updated since then, but yeah. There's
0: always a first infection.
2: Well, exactly. So there was someone who responded to this on Twitter. His name is Remco Verhoff, and he said that maybe to protect users, it would help to, first of all, display admin badges for team admins so that someone can't pretend to be an admin right. when they aren't, and also disable non-admins the ability to send direct messages to users. So you can only send messages in public in the clear, right? Because why right. Why did this need to be a private message? It, it, it because if
0: everybody saw it, they would expose it as, hey, right. whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. But, it, so, if it,
2: but if it was legit, you'd want as many people to be able to find out about it as possible. Right. Right. So there's an interesting flag to be aware of that uh, why would someone be sending a private message? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's a good point.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting one, something to keep an eye out for if you're using these sort of networks for uh, teaming up with folks to solve problems. Uh, just something to keep in the back of your mind that not everyone there is who they say they are. And some people may be up to no good. That's right.
0: Good advice for life.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right? All right, Joe, it's time for our catch of the day.
0: What do you have for us this week? Our catch of the day comes from a listener in Dublin. Hmm. it's Philippe. Philippe. And he writes, hi guys, I'd like to suggest something interesting from Europe for your catch of the day. All right. So it turns out a month ago, Philippe's iPhone 10 was stolen Mm. while he was in London on a business trip. Mm -hmm. He immediately locked his phone with the find my phone feature of iCloud. Right. Uh, I'm not an Apple user, so I might be using all these terms wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. I won't hold it against you. But yes, you can just say you can log into iCloud and basically lock
0: the phone. Brick the phone so nobody can use Mm -hmm. it. Yep. Right. He said he had some financial information on there, but the criminals were not able to unlock the device because it was secured and then locked with the iCloud feature.
2: Right. Right. he was using Face ID, too. Right.
0: Face ID. So he, he has attached an email he received from scammers two months later, and I'm going to read the email to you now. All right. Okay. This is... Allegedly from Apple support. Uh huh. Right. And it reads as follows Hi, customer. Your Apple ID will be disabled because of some violated policies. It's important, comma, action required on your account. The following changes to your Apple ID were made on July 10th, 2018. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. We've noticed that your account information appears to be invalid and unverified. We need to verify your account information in order for you to keep continue using your Apple ID account. Please open the attached file and verify your Apple ID before 24 hours or your Apple ID will be disabled. Sincerely, Apple Support.
2: Apple support with a lowercase Uh, a.
0: This whole thing is replete (laughs) with capitalization and punctuation errors. Yeah, it's
2: (laughs) uh, it's hard to describe to our listeners. For a company who is known for their meticulousness when it comes to design,
0: this is laughable. Yes, it is laughable. So obviously a scam here. Obviously a scam. I mean, I wish we could show our listeners the capitalization. In the first sentence, Apple ID is all lowercase. At the end of it, it's Apple with a capital A, an ID is capitalized, both letters. Right. The sentence ends with a comma right. instead of a period. Right. <laughs> Some sentences have no punctuation whatsoever. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's, it's one incredibly long run on. This is just, right. if I got this, I'd be like, oh, geez. Yeah. You guys got to try harder.
2: <laughs> now, it's interesting they were able to track him down. If, if you plug a, an iPhone into a Mac... It will give you some information about the phone. It'll give you the phone number. It'll give you however the person named the phone. So if, you know, if Philippe had said, you know, had named it Philippe's phone, you know, included his last name, it's it's certainly plausible that they, they would have enough information to start trying to track him down. They could cross-reference some things. Right. And maybe that's how they were able to reach out to him.
0: Could it be also that these two things are unrelated, that this yeah. is just, you know, he lost his phone. And that's unfortunate, but then suddenly gets this email from a scammer trying to get him to run this app just because.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, Philippe is a cybersecurity professional. That's right. So this did not work on Philippe. <laughs> his radar was up and uh, <laughs> right. and he, he, did not, he did not fall for it. This one
0: did not slip through his crap detector.
2: <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you, Philippe, for sending this in. And of course, we love it when folks uh, send in things. So if you have something that, that you think would be good for our catch of the day, please uh, go ahead and send it to us. You can find our contact information on the CyberWire website. That's the thecyberwire.com. And that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Rachel Toback. And we are back. Joe, I recently had a great conversation with Rachel Toback. She is the CEO of Social Proof Security. She is well known in the world of social engineering security. And in fact, she's demonstrated her social engineering skills in a number of social engineering capture the flag competitions. And so here's my conversation with Rachel Toback.
1: I discovered social engineering in the past five or so years. My husband, actually, he's a cybersecurity researcher, and he was the person that went to DEF CON. He went first and he actually gave me a call and told me that I needed to buy a ticket and come to DEF CON and watch the social engineering capture the flag because he could see me doing it one day. Hmm. And I didn't believe him at all. How is that related to teaching, which is what I was doing at the time and being a community manager. I was not completely non-technical at the time, but I had a a background in applied behavior analysis, um, which is basically using persuasion to help people and I use help people as a special needs educator, community manager, user researcher, many different things, but not in the cybersecurity world. Hmm. So, you know, he kind of figured out that that was going to be what I should do.
2: So, you go to your first DEF CON as an observer first. Did you get the bug? Did you say, yeah, this is me?
1: I went to DEF CON, made my fake badge, and basically just hunkered down and sat in the front row of the social engineering capture the flag. And I watched people in the Soundproof booth making their calls. The people that I saw, they did a great job, but they kept hitting voicemail after voicemail. If you've ever been to the social engineering capture the flag, it's really tough. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of luck for people to even pick up the phone. It happens. The calls that I were watching were happening on a Saturday. And so to get somebody like an employee of a company to pick up their phone on a Saturday, that's hard in and of itself. And so that yeah. year I ended up watching a lot of people get voicemails, but the, the calls that did go through were so impressive. And I just kept thinking, this is the exact same thing that I do when I get our bills lowered for Comcast or when I call Verizon and try and merge accounts or, you know, like I'll call my pet insurance company and try and get information about my account without authenticating first. And I never knew that that had a name. And after watching the SECTF at DEF CON, I realized that it did. And I applied the next year and Chris had an Aggie who leads the entire uh, village. He took a huge chance on me.
2: Yeah. uh, Chris was actually the first guest on this podcast. He's an interesting guy. So you win two years in a row. And uh, how does that transition into deciding this is what you want your career to be?
1: It was kind of organic. So what happened is I ended up getting second place two years in a row, the top two win, and started talking with people about DEF CON. And and people were like, you know, you really should start telling your story. You should start giving some talks. And as soon as I, I got off the winner's podium at DEF CON my first year, an organization called Women in Security and Privacy, WISP, a nonprofit that helps advance women in the fields, they actually approached me and they were like, we want you to join our board, which was a huge break for me because I was able to learn from people in the field. They took me under their wing. And the more I told people about my story, the more they realized that I should start giving some talks and let people know my experience because it was pretty nonlinear. And I didn't really come from the infosec world. So maybe I can land a different type of viewpoint. So I started giving talks and the more talks I would give, the more people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, this talk, I would like you to give it at my work. Can you do that? I was like, I I guess. So I started thinking, if I'm going to do that, I should probably form an LLC. Mm. So that's what I did. Um, And it kind of happened organically in that way where it started with, you know, just giving talks to people's work and kind of sharing my story, making sure that people understand that maybe you don't look like everybody that you've seen in cybersecurity, or maybe you've gone to a conference before and you walked around and you felt like you didn't belong. But, you know, I felt like I didn't belong before and I actually do. So, there are many different things you can do in InfoSec, and I think it helps people understand that even if there's people that might not look like you right now or sound like you right now, there might be in the future or maybe you could help kind of start that process. So it, it kind of started with getting other women involved in cybersecurity and then expanded from there to Pentest, OSINT, work.
2: Now, do you find that there's a mismatch between people's perception of the technical side of cybersecurity and the human and social engineering side? People come and knock on people's doors all the time and say, you need this technical solution. We're going to protect all your data. But I suspect they don't get as many people knocking on their door for the types of services you provide.
1: Yeah, I haven't had to do a lot of door knocking. I've been pretty lucky. Pretty much every time I give a talk, there's a line of people who are like, I didn't realize this was a threat. You've just changed my understanding of our threat model, can you come in next week? And I think we're at kind of like a golden age of social engineering, where I do have a lot of luck in the time that I came in here, where people don't know a lot about what can be done, how they can protect their employees. And we're really just starting to see the media show examples of how their employees got tricked. Or how we're just starting to really understand that the majority of cyber attacks do start with social engineering. That's not something that we've understood for very many years.
2: Do you think that the emphasis on social engineering from the bad guy's point of view, could that be the result of sort of a maturation of the defenses on the technical side? If if it's harder to get in using traditional technical attacks, how they have to shift their tactics and, and go after the human side of things?
1: That definitely could be it. If I said that that was definitely true, I'd be lying because there's definitely no way for me to know exactly that that's the case, but that's a guess of mine. I do think that a maturation in technical security makes it more complicated, but I think that it actually might be that people have always been using social engineering. It's just that now we realize it. In the past, people might not have been really privy or understanding just how many people were walking through their door, giving them calls, reaching out to their employees over social media. It just wasn't widely realized as a thing. I think it could be both of those things, but I think it's also that people are seeing it more in the media. They understand it more as a threat now, and it might not actually be happening anymore than it ever was. It's a pretty old tactic. But we know more about it now. So we see it more.
2: Now, when you go in and and present to people and, and do trainings and so forth, what do you witness in terms of people having aha moments? Are there things that people generally don't know about that you sort of shine a light on?
1: Depends on the type of team that I'm working with. If I'm working with a red team, there's a lot of laughter. <laughs> like They're like, oh, yeah, that's something that we wanted to try for a while. And working with them to craft some of their next red team exploits, that's always fun. But if I'm working with, say, a finance organization at a big tech company or something like that, there are a lot of moments where employees will stare and then go, oh no. And I see them take their phone out and they start scrolling through their social media, deleting posts. And I think that's one of the most important things is that there are small things that you can do to understand how much information you're putting out into the world. I think sometimes people don't realize, oh my gosh, I did share that information of where I just traveled. Or I did tweet about how I purchased that thing on Amazon. And that really could be used against me. I need to be aware of that. So Yeah. People start to take notes. They start scrolling through their phone, going through their email. um, And they come up to me after the talks and they're like, can you help me figure out what to scrub on my Instagram? (laughs) And that's like one of the most fun things to do after a talk is just sit with five people and help them figure out what to scrub or walk through. Here's what I would do with this information. Here's how I would build trust with you, knowing that Alex is your best friend at work. Here's what I would pretend to say over the phone.
2: What do you suppose people's biggest weaknesses are when it comes to having these methods used against them?
1: Humans in general have an inherent willingness to trust people who sound like they know what they're talking about. So if I come from a place of authority, I don't have to ever raise my voice or sound mean. My voice sounds exactly like I'm talking to you right now. And if I can come from a place of that authority, then people are more likely to comply because they're trusting And I think that's a part of human nature. We want to be empathetic. If the person on the other end of the line is saying, hey, work with me here, you're likely to do so. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I wouldn't want our culture to get to a point where we can't have that empathy or that EQ or that trustworthiness with each other. But the thing that I try and highlight with my trainings is we need to be politely paranoid. We don't need to question every single thing that happens in our lives. But if we notice something feels a little off, if we have that feeling of, hmm, this feels weird. I don't. Now they're asking questions that are a little more personal. We don't have to feel crazy for stopping the conversation mid-conversation and saying, you know what, you're starting to ask me some stuff that I don't want to answer. I'm not allowed to answer that. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that human beings are reciprocal. We know this from Chaldington's principles of persuasion. They're reciprocal and they rely a lot on commitment and consistency. And so if you start telling me information over the phone, you're highly unlikely to stop if it's already been 20 minutes. But I help kind of give people a different way out, give them some phrases that they can say so that they don't need to continue or they don't need to feel crazy. They're not bad people if they need to question things or people walking through their doors.
2: And what do you find in terms of the effectiveness of training? How effective is it? Are people receptive and, and what sort of tools do you provide them with, as you say, to, to not walk around being completely paranoid, but also <laughs> have you know having their guard up, I guess dialing it in in an appropriate sort of way?
1: Every organization that I work with is slightly different. You know, if I'm working with a bank, a large financial institution, they need to be a little bit more paranoid than maybe a mom and pop shop, right? Their threat model is a little different. So we tend to work with them and, and make it specific to who they are and the types of calls that they might get, emails they might get, people who might try and walk through their door. We found that the most effective thing to do is to actually put people in the place of a hacker for at least 30 minutes, give them a target, give them a chance to think about what information would I look for How would I go after this person? What phone number would I call? Oh, I would find it from their business card on their Instagram. Oh, got it. I should probably scrub mine. It's really abstract if we just give kind of high level tips, but if we actually have somebody sit in the place of a hacker and think about what they would do, what a criminal might do, they're much more likely to carry that over into their personal and professional lives and actually be able to think constructively about what they want to change in their life to be more effective with securing their data, information, computers, all of that. We've seen it be extremely effective, more effective than just phishing campaigns alone or, you know, slide decks. I think that's that's challenging. It's just kind of death by PowerPoint. If you can actually have someone try it, that's where the real change happens. That's where you actually see that click-through rate go down and the vishing rate go down.
0: That was a great interview, Dave. Well, uh, thank you. I think she's correct about the twofold reason we're seeing the increase in social engineering, both being that we're noticing it more and that it is increasing because the technology is getting better. I like to look at a lot of these things as economic problems and that people are now the weakest link and the most cost-effective means of, of getting into an organization right so. as the
2: other methods become more expensive because the defenses are better right good old-fashioned cons exactly. still work
0: and and we need to inoculate ourselves and that's kind of the mission of this podcast right, right. yeah so interesting we're doing good for the world here
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> rachel was great i and i really enjoyed the conversation with her learned a lot
0: couple more things one sometimes when i buy things on online websites mm-hmm. it says share this purchase on your social media accounts Mm. And she talked about, why would I ever want to share a purchase I make on a social media account?
2: Mm. Um. I guess other than bragging... Yeah, you know, look at this new Ferrari I just bought.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I'm. I'm not going to tell anybody I just bought a new Ferrari. First right. off, I'm never going to buy a Ferrari. <laughs> You're a Porsche man. So. <laughs> uh, I'm a Toyota guy. I you? see.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm with you. Gotcha.
0: All right. Very good. Maybe I'm <laughs> a the guy when I get a convertible okay. for my midlife crisis car. Sure. But I really like the term politely paranoid. I might personally live at a level of paranoia that some might describe as unhealthy, but I do like. <laughs> The politely paranoid, you know, it's it's okay to stop the conversation. And finally, the thing I really like about her is they think like an attacker or think like a hacker or Mm -hmm. think like a criminal. Yeah. I have a great example of this. All right. And this is kind of a rather crass story. (laughs) Go on. My family was on the road one day. (laughs) Yeah. And we're driving. This is up in Western Maryland. And there is on the side of the road, there's a school bus for sale. Mm. And my wife goes, we could buy that school bus and turn it into a camper. Right. And I go. Camper, just think of all the kids we could abduct with that school bus, <laughs> right? Right, right. Because that's my thought process, right? Why is it okay for someone to sell a school bus? I could just buy a school bus, right? Follow a school bus on its route, and then precede that school bus by a couple of minutes and pick up kids, right? I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm absolutely not going to do that. It'd sure, be terrible and horrible. Right. But that's the way I, th- I think, like an attacker. Yeah. And sometimes that offends a lot of people. Um, (laughs) And I think that is a huge problem is that we don't think like attackers and we think that we're bad people for having these thoughts of these opportunities Mm -hmm. That, that having the thought of the opportunity that 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 could be used to abduct children does not make you a bad person. What makes you a bad person is actually doing that right right but thinking hey that's that's a vulnerability how many times have when your kids rode a school bus did the school bus ever show up with a bus number just written on on a piece of paper stuck in a window the
2: bus breaks down the bus driver's bus driver's ill
0: yeah 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 it's a Perfect opportunity. So you know,
2: it's funny. I remember when I was a kid. And you remember, did you have safeties, kids who were yeah, sort we, of deputized to yes. be, <laughs> to be extra? You know, they had a special little sash that they wore. Yeah, yeah, we had, yeah we had that too. But I remember one of my friends was a safety. Yeah, evidently, I was not chosen, eligible, whatever. Right. Neither, neither um, was I. I'm still bitter about it. But <laughs> um, but the safeties were actually trained as to what license plate numbers the county buses had. Ah. So like the prefix on the on the buses. So so this this is, you know, however many years, decades ago. Right. There were people who were thinking about this. Well,
0: that, that's good. Yeah, I, I am. I actually I'm very glad to hear that because yeah. that answers my question. <laughs> right. How do I know that that's the right bus? Yeah. Yeah. But there was never a, a safety at my bus stop. OK. But that was high school. Yeah, they kind of lured it over us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In elementary school, I never rode a bus to elementary school because the school is right behind my neighborhood, so we just walked to it.
2: Oh, interesting. I only rode a bus to elementary school. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The limo drove me the rest of the time. Anyway, (laughs) so our thanks to Rachel Toback for joining us. She is uh, on Twitter at Rachel Toback, and the name of her company is Social Proof Security. We appreciate her taking the time with us. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your
1: feedback now.